thought the wet soup was a pee valve. Right, I'll stop chomping ice. Scuba Obsessed Weekly Podcast. We talk about all things scuba diving from cool new gear, places to dive, and scuba news. Scuba Obsessed episode 206 is recorded live July 10th, 2014. Welcome back to Scuba Obsessed. I'm Darren Jolson coming from the west side of the state of Michigan. Joining me this week, we have Mac, the dive mentor. How you doing today, Mac? I'm um, doing pretty good. Stayed dry today. Um, it was a nice sunny day, too. Oh, uh, we needed it. And then also joining us from not too far away, we have Jim Schultz. How you doing today, Jim? I'm suffering from a dive-related injury. Oh, no. Hopefully nothing too serious. Ear infection. That's bad enough. That's uh, I, I think that kind of goes with the territory, unfortunately. It seems uh, probably one of the more common dive-related symptoms is can be an ear infection. Yep, the doctor said I've got swimmer's ear. I knew it, but still had to pay him to look in my ear with that little scope and say, yep, it's infected. Now, did he give you anything for it? or? Yeah, he gave me some antibiotic drops to put in the ear. He said that'll help kill the infection and soothe and stop the swelling. So we're going to start on those tonight. And like to apologize to everybody we missed last week. Seems like once again this year we're having a hard time keeping a a good stretch going without problems, but we got hit in this part of Michigan with one of those storms that you, you hope only happens about once a decade, but we've been averaging about once every six months. We get a pretty good storm, and this one took out a bunch of trees. I was without power, what, probably about three days? How about how about you, Jim? We didn't lose power except for about uh, 12 hours. 12 hours? Yeah. And then, and then how about you, Mac? You, do you Did you lose any power? Yeah, we lost power for a day. And we lost internet, phone, and anything with Comcast for almost a week. A week? That was a whole yeah. week? Yeah, wow. try doing that without your phone. If I hadn't had the cell for the kids, it would have mm-hmm. been not a lot of fun. Well, last week when we were trying to coordinate, you kept calling me, but I could never hear you. Could you hear me? I could hear you fine. My phone was was just not working huh. uh, for whatever reason. Yeah, it was just odd because I, you know, I you called me, I called you. We probably put together about eight or nine calls, and yeah, I couldn't hear you on, in, on any of them. I, what was it fully charged or? Oh yeah, it was fully charged because I had it on using the uh, the charger and the line. Hopefully, as an antenna. Uh huh. But the, they're just dropping around here like crazy, or at least they were that day. I couldn't keep a signal. Okay. Well, let's go ahead and uh, jump right on into the news. <laughs> We've got uh, scuba divers undertake a five-mile underwater swim in memory of a club member. A group of scuba divers are going to do a five-mile relay, and this is in the Coniston Waters. Uh, This is out of the U.K. Uh, Members of the Ribble Valley Branch of the British Subaquatic Club are remembering Duncan Priestley, who passed away at just age 59, August 2013, from cancer. They're going to use the relay system to cover five and a half mile lake Sunday. Uh, it's going to be from 6 a.m. to 4 p.m. Their aim is to raise a bunch of cash for the lifeboat charity RNLI. 
Last year, the members raised 2200 for the uh, Pendleside Hospice in Duncan's memory after taking on uh, a few silly underwater challenges. So it's going to be quite a job for the scuba club diving the length of the, the constant underwater. They'll be doing it in buddy pairs with divers keeping a depth of six meters. The buddy pair will use a compass and will trail a surface marker buoy so they can safely crew knots exactly where they are. Safety crew knows. I said knots. I was thinking something else. In fact, we'll have two uh, ribs or uh, rigid inflatable boats, the second one ferrying the next pair of divers. And then last year they talked about what they did, which was include they did things like uh, an underwater gym session, played underwater draughts. One diver wrote 100 lines, ate as many different fruits as possible. And another one munched on a pile of sausages. What's an underwater draught? Is that, I thought is that, that was a drink. That's what I was thinking. Played underwater draughts? Is that a game maybe? I don't know. It must be. And, yeah, but if you said a draught, I was, I was thinking that was like a beer. Yeah. So hopefully they get good turnout. Six miles. That's a, it's quite a hoof in it underwater. Well, like we talked earlier, I was curious how they were going to do it. Now it makes more sense doing a relay. Yeah. And they're giving themselves, what, almost 12 hours? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it'll give them some time. wonder why they picked uh, 18 feet, 17, 18 feet in, instead of shallower. Yeah, shallower you would get more time in. Maybe it's just for buoyancy, a little bit easier being down at that depth. And you get up there about three or four meters. The they could crawl on the bottom. Well, you, you're thinking like like uh, do some grubbing on the way? Well, if it's up current, it'd be a pain in the butt. But if it's with the current, that'll help a heck of a lot. Yeah. Well, they say it's a, is it a river? They, they make it sound like they're going the whole length of it. I'm looking at the picture of it, and uh, it's kind of like a, a valley within a couple mountain. That's what it looks like. So maybe it's one of those things, you know, like what we would have a dammed up lake. Maybe that's kind of what it is. There's a little bit of something feeding into it, and then it feeds out. Yeah, I'm still curious why so deep. I, you know, shallow seems like it'd be easier, get, less hazardous. Well, you get uh, more time on your out of your tanks as well. Yeah, and then we have a dive crew saving uh, a cat that was struggling to breathe. The, the poor cat had become distressed, struggled to breathe while moving house. It had been, and that's being saved by scuba divers. Uh, Georgie, the cat had a longstanding heart condition was being moved by his owners to a new home on Friday. When he went into respiratory distress, his owners were able to call their daughter, Joe Lewis of the cat vet home visiting clinic who came to rescue with a life-saving oxygen supply. Unfortunately, Georgie consumed a full tank and still needed more. Uh, for Georgie, it was quite literally a matter of life or death, said Miss Lewis. Being a Friday afternoon, they had exhausted all other avenues, including their usual oxygen supplier, and they were about to give up hope. We watched as the pressure gauge in the cylinder was running into the red. They decided to call uh, Martin Weddle, who's a co-owner of the dive crew in Brookings Corner, Crawthorn, who saved the day by li- delivering another tank. Dive crew is an emergency first responding training center, and they generally... Trained the public to take first aid on humans, not cats. We are so pleased we could help. We've been informed Georgie is now stable and getting back to his normal self. So that, that's something to learn from that. I mean, divers, even though they call it, they say that our tanks are oxygen, it's not unusual for divers to have actual oxygen tanks. Well, you figure Larry's got his kit. Jim has our, uh, Jim, you do have, you have one also. Yeah. I've got one and uh, Ken has one, so. Yeah. Generally, when we're up north, everybody has an oxygen kit on one of the boats, if not all of them. Yeah, so that's quite a supply. And then if you're a dive center who's mixing nitrox, I mean, you could have a full T-cylinder, too. Yeah. So, uh, lucky cat. 
You know, kind of related to that, our fire department just got a grant uh, to start carrying oxygen masks for animals on our fire gear, on our equipment. Yeah, I've seen that quite a bit in the papers where, you know, a lot of times people will be able to get out, but they all the pets don't make it with them. And that smoke inhalation, that seems to help. Yeah, uh, that's why I've got it for. And, uh, uh, Invisible Fence just gave us a grant to provide masks uh, for all of our trucks. That's nice. Well, that's a good PR for Invisible Fence. Yeah. You know, in your experience in the last 20 years, how many pets have you ever had or would have been nice to resuscitate? There have been times we wish we could have. And we've tried it on the oxygen masks we use on people, and it just doesn't work as well. So these new pet masks are designed strictly for pets, and hopefully we won't have to use them. But they're there if we need them. Yeah, it seems like you put a plastic bag over their head, put the, the valve in there with oxygen. That'd be one way to do it, I suppose. Yeah, we've tried some different things. Those can't be pressure demand. No, no, they're just constant flow. So it's constant flow, but they're probably designed to, f- to fit around the, the nose of a dog or the face of a cat. Well, you put the whole head in, in, in a plastic bag and put the O2 in there. That's better than that. Mask will yep. be better, though. Yep. And we have a new diver rule taking effect. We had talked about this in previous shows that were down in Florida. They were referring to it. So this was, and it's, I'm trying to read between the lines to figure out what the the actual rule is. So they said, effective July 1, divers and snorkelers will have the option displaying a buoy with a series of diver down symbols, which is the red field with a white diagonal line, as an alternative to the traditional diver's down flag. The buoy can be three or four sided and must have a diver's down symbol of at least 12 inches by 12 inches displayed on each of the flat sides. Such as the buoy should help divers, especially those in open water, to be more visible to passing boats. Diver down symbols displayed on board a boat must still be a flag at least 20 by 24 inches displayed at a height point where it is visible in any direction. Divers may still use a diver's down flag of at least 12 inches by 12 inches on a float when towed along with them in the water. Divers should stay within the required distance of their flag or buoy 300 feet in open water and 100 feet in rivers, inlets, and channels. Boat operators should stay at least the same distance away from any diver's down flag or buoy. Boats operating within the safety zone must be at idle speed. And they said that scallop season had opened down there in Florida June 28th, and lobster season will open July 30th. Now, what? so what's the big difference here? Is it the, the fact I, that I it's think, a buoy? Yeah, I think it's the buoy. You can have a buoy and don't have to have a flag. So if you think about a triangular buoy that's 12 by 12 on each side, mm-hmm. um, if the wind is blowing directly towards the boat or away from the boat that is approaching the dive flag, yeah. like if I'm coming at a dive flag from upwind or downwind, I'm not going to see the flag because it's going to be pointing directly at me. Where with a triangular buoy, no matter what angle I approach from, I'm going to see one of those flat sides that shows a diver down flag. Now, are they referring to the, it's it's like a, it's not quite a tire inner tube, but it's the you know, plastic version of it. And then they would have, you know, call it like a political sign holder with a, with a, a flag on each side. No, I think what they're talking about is if you take the float that we're using that basically is a round ball Uh and make that ball a 12 by 12 triangle, Uh uh, you know, 12 by 12 on each side, and it's either going to be a square or a triangle, and then you put your dive flag on top of that. If they can't see the dive flag, 
they're still going to see that triangular float above the diver. Okay. Makes I'll sense? Th- uh, yeah, it, it kind of does. I, it, I'd love it to see. It seems like a good idea. You know, it, you think about the, you know, the little six-inch ball that we've got on our float or maybe a f- yeah. three-inch tube that's a foot tall, and you replace that with a nice 12 by 12 styrofoam float um, with a dive flag on it, it makes you more visible. Yeah, do they, well, you, do they just say said how- with, you just said with a dive flag on it, that's not required with that. Putting the well, dive with a dive symbol, a dive symbol on the on the styrofoam. True, but the putting floor. a flagpole on it, like we currently do, right. adds visibility because this is not unusual. Uh, this is in several states that are coastal states use this already, and in Europe they use this. And in fact, in Europe, you'll quite often find the float buoy that is colored also has a mast with two flags. One is the uh, alpha flag, and one is the diver flag. But okay. if you've only got a 12-inch buoy out there with that on there, that's a little hard to see because you can't see our buoys out there when we're, you know, our no. wreck buoys when we toss them out. No. No, I, I so would. Keeping that flag up is still very important because you can always put a strobe on it or you mm-hmm. take a CD disc, cut them in half, put them together. You've yeah, got well, something that's what... that'll catch the light. Well, that's what I was going to see is if they had a height requirement because they, they just talk about it. The three sides, they don't mention a height. So, I, I, like you said, I would want to combine the two together. You know, have that at the bottom and then have a, a flag at least six, you know, five, six feet up. Well, that way we if don't you're have in, that right now. We have, what, three feet? If that. Yeah, I think I'd have to measure mine. Mine's, a, I think it's a four-foot rod and I got a foot down and three feet up. But no, I've been thinking about. Feet. The standard ones aren't that big. Oh, that's why I'm homemade it. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't. I didn't want what what they had made because yeah, the the ones they make are. Well, I hate saying they're for tourists, but that's kind of what it feels like. It's something convenient to dive shop. It's another add-on sale as opposed to something that I consider to be really functional and useful. Now, I am surprised they didn't make it bigger though, because a lot of states have bigger than twelve by twelve. That's really small. Yeah. Well, I think what they're factoring in is that. Because you've got it on three sides, it's actually bigger object in the water. It's just that the f- the flag marking itself is twelve by twelve. So you know, if you came ideally, on it in some sides, it would be you know probably eighteen inches or so. Yeah. Ideally, though, if you put that rod up and put the red, white, red, mm-hmm. three feet up, you can see that a long way. Especially if you have the flashing red, white, red. Yeah. You know the symbol for it that you'd use at night. You can use that in the daytime. Yeah. Especially if you make them red and white strokes. Yeah, well, with, the, with LEDs now and what we're able to do with, with power, uh, it, that makes sense. I'll have to come up with a new design, see what I can come up with, because I, I think we can come up with one a little bit safer. The the other part of it is having something that doesn't have too much drag, uh, you know, if you're getting a strong current. Or a wave action, yeah. Yeah. Uh, that's the only thing I was thinking about when I, I heard that was drag in the river. Yeah. And you know how it is when we have our inner tubes and you have oh. that duty bag hanging under it? That's yeah. a pain in the butt to tow. Yeah, I, well, I've it's like every almost every time I've had that the, my larger tube with the with the goodie box in it, yeah, you know, I've I've kind of had a swim involved. That's because you're always coming upstream on your way back instead of the other way around. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, I think I'll, I'll have to come up see what kind of design I can come up with. Because what, what I liked about the my float was it only had uh, it had a very shallow draw. Because I, di- I didn't want to be, because we were, we're grubbing, and there's times where you're in, you know, <laughs> my tank's out of the water. And I didn't want the, the pole or the line getting caught up in the bottom. So, okay, we'll have to see. Hopefully they'll have some, some good results with this. 
And then we have Lake Minnewashka closed for leeches. It was closed Tuesday, July 1st and Wednesday, July 2nd to treat the popular swimming spot for leeches. This is according to New York State Office of Parks and Recreation and Historic Preservation website. Well, they got That's kind of a combined group. The announcement said that the copper sulfate will be applied to treat the water for the leeches and the two-day closure, the two-day closure applying to swimmers, boaters, scuba divers, fishers, drinking, irrigation, and livestock, and pet watering. Boy, I included everything in there. So basically saying don't touch the water. We're poisoning it. Uh, they said that the sesame seed-sized leeches first clung to his leg in mid-June, cluing him to the lake's bloodthirsty visitors. The leech infestation raises concerns about the changes to the lake's ecosystem. He said the lake's high acidity has always kept the lake free of aquatic life, but that recent years have seen unintentional introduction of fish species, golden shiners, largemouth baths to the area. Lower acid levels, he said, allow creepy crawly critters like the leeches to thrive and feast. And did you see the, the photo there? Yeah. That looks ugly. Yeah, he did quite a lot of them. I can remember as a kid, we used to have some ponds where it was always the ones where you had swimming lessons in and they would well, have leeches. I'm just curious. So the high acidity has kept the lake free of aquatic life. So if that's true, where do leeches come from and what have they been feasting on? Yeah, I don't know. Or is it that it's... Un, they said unintentional introduction of, fe- of fish species, golden shiners, largemouth bass. That doesn't sound like a bad thing. No. It's like, do they think that that's the natural state of that lake? Well, if they had high acidity and they didn't have any aquatic life, something obviously happened happened to the acidity levels. But if you got fish, you must have other items. Yeah. And obviously now they got leeches. I always thought leeches were large and you know look like big worms that suck on your body. And they probably got different types, but the one the ones I've always seen have been uh, yeah they'll they'll they were more worm like. I mean, just imagine a your typical fishing worm, and except for one end would bite onto your leg or foot. Or ankle, or I've anything seen, else you happen to dip in the water. I've seen them. I've had them on me in some diving places, but they're more like slugs as the one that got attached to us. Yeah. Well, the, the yeah. medical leeches seem to be the more slug-looking ones. The much kind of almost like a snail without a shell. Yeah, yeah. But they said that the lower acid levels is what is allowing them. So you're right. It's where's this at? New York. Uh, yeah, New, New York. Interesting. If you can make it there, you can make it anywhere. And the Girl Scouts are following the Boy Scouts lead, and they're offering a scuba program for girls. This one's in uh, northern Illinois. Uh, local girls ages 10 and older have the opportunity to discover the thrill of scuba diving at the Girl Scouts Northern Illinois District Scuba Program. And this is going to be held the Sunday, July 27th at uh, the Sea Level Diving, and this is in Crystal Lake. Girls will have their, oh, it says girls will leave their fears on the pool deck and learn the basics of scuba diving and dive around the pool with scuba equipment. So they're charging registration at $32.00. Uh, per registered Girl Scout, forty-seven for non-registered Girl Scout, and fifteen dollars registers as a Girl Scout. Oh, so it's, it's almost like a recruitment program for them. That can't be for a full course, though. That just must be the Discover Diving. Yeah. And then this one, Mac, we talked about, but I haven't actually even read the article. They say new technology increases interest in scuba diving. Let's see, it's out of San Diego. Uh, they're saying that recent advancements have made it a lot easier for people to get in and try diving. As people's curiosity peaks, they want in to dive. Uh, so I don't know what they're referring to is what's new. Oh, he's, oh, well, let's see. They make it easier. No longer do divers have to lug around uncomfortable equipment and awkward wetsuits. You still need a tank for air 
but he wears a helmet that allows him to breathe easier than traditional tubes and mouthpiece with his new helmet. He can talk to other divers and people above the water who are holding a transceiver within a 600-foot radius. He was wearing a dry suit over his normal clothes, strolling into his conversant. Once he was in, he saw kinds of sea life. I, I guess, I mean, are they just talking about a dry suit and a full face mask? Well, you know, no longer have to look around uncomfortable equipment. If you still need your tank, once you get rid of the tank, what's uncomfortable, guys? And what's awkward about a wetsuit? I don't know. I didn't. It doesn't have a zipper to go to the bathroom. Hey, you can get a pee valve. <laughs> In a wetsuit? <laughs> I thought my I thought the wetsuit was a pee valve. That's a story for another day. <laughs> I wish they'd have shown the helmet. And if you got a helmet, then you're going to have a weight aspect, you know, unless that's that sandbag one you put over your shoulders. Yeah, I'm not sure. I... New technology. What the heck? Yeah. Okay. We'll just say that's the way it was written. We like to believe it. Yeah. Now, how... how... Oh, let's see. I, I, I've got ahead of my uh, pre queued up. So we've got uh, Time Magazine making the first 360-degree panoramic underwater video. Now, Jim, did you see how they did this? Yeah, I looked at that. It's with uh, GoPros. Yeah, yeah, that was pretty slick. Six so they, GoPros. They took six GoPros, and if you think of a, a cube, and you had cameras from inside the cube pointing each in one face of the cube, and then through software, they're able to stitch this together and make a 360-degree view. Does that mean you have to have a 360-degree screen? Well, I think what they do, let's see, do they talk about it in here? We're not going to read the whole article. So it's a question no, and answer. They didn't uh, really get into a whole lot of what it views or what it shows. But, uh, you know, if you had an IMAX, you could certainly see it in an IMAX. Yeah. Well, you could also have something where as your like as the as the video footage is going, mm. you could have it to where you could turn and look and change as, from the front view to the side view or from the for, back. View. Yeah, well, and it would be stitched. I don't know if you've ever seen this where they'll show a hotel room or a landscape, and it's this three sixty panoramic, but mm -hmm. it's stationary, and you're able to scroll, so you can scroll right or left. The idea is that we're getting to the point where you're going to shoot video that way, and then with this uh like an oculus rift type of uh you know virtual reality device you could turn your head as the movie's playing and it's like you're in there and you're able to see all the way around so whatever gets your interest you can look at so really kind of cool you know one of those yeah. things that uh, you know i'd love to play around with now other than now you need three uh, six of those and then just imagine how uh much video you're creating just the bandwidth and the the size but uh excellent item then we have a sh shipwreck survey is going to be conducted if it hasn't been already off scarborough i believe when they're saying scarborough this is another one in the uk is that the, the same place you have the fair scarborough fair it could be i would i don't know do the, the uk doesn't seem that big that you'd have multiple the same city they said this project is going to be carried out by members of the newly formed south bay scuba scarborough branch of the british subaquatic club uh, they will include about 20 shipwrecks between Flamborough and Whitby and will map and record the exact position. Underwater mission will include three wrecks which have yet to be identified. Explore a tragic tale of fishing trawler Skegness, which sank in September 1935 and lost all 11 crew members. Uh, they'll do an exploratory dive in the British merchant steamer Ella Sayer, which was torpedoed by German U-boat in April 1918. The survey has been made possible by a 1,150-pound 1 grant 
from the British Subaquatic Club Jubilee Trust, which was set up almost 40 years ago to finance support for organizations, clubs with a variety of interests and worthwhile scuba diving projects. The grant came as club members won a 10,000 pound sports England grant, which they use to buy the club's own Mitchell 31 dive boat. One of the founding members is Ann Morrison, 62, is also treasurer, membership secretary, and gained the grant from the Jubilee Trust. And said, I'm grateful that the BAS, uh, BSAC and the Jubilee Trust grant, which means we can look at the size of the wrecks along this stretch of coast. Some of those wrecks are quite well dived, while others are only visited on very rare occasions. We want to record any notable features, size of wrecks, their position, orientation, condition. All the information we carefully recorded and given, together with any photography and video we obtained to Scarborough's Maritime Heritage Group and used to enhance the display they're putting together late, later in the year. It's a good time to start the survey as last year's winter storms really churned up the sea. There's been so much moving of sand on the seabed. There are a lot of things have been uncovered, features that were previously buried beneath the seabed. So I, I like how they do the clubs over there. You know, the, they're all kind of aligned under the British Subaquatic Club. And let's see, what could we do with uh, $20,000? Can you say side scan? Yeah. <laughs> Even renting it for the summer, we would definitely get payback. Oh, yeah. So if anybody listening does have a uh, old one they're not using, not real old, like World War II or something, uh, let us borrow it and we'll uh, add you in there on the supporters of our wreck-finding adventures. Yeah, we'll give you credit, some sort of name, something. Just let us know what you want. We're open for negotiations. We're very easy to, to negotiate with. You tell us what you want and we'll find a way to beg, borrow, or steal it. Or at least promise you that we will. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> How about this one? Kayakers discover a ghost ship along the Ohio River in Lawrenceburg, Indiana. Paddle up the creek to the Kentucky side of the river. Feast your eyes on a piece of history. There's a remains of a 112-year-old, 186-foot steel vessel with a historic rap sheet. And they, they talk about all the different names. So it was, uh, it's, they said it's hard to, to name the ship because it's been so many names. Back in 1902, it was constructed at Wilmington, Delaware Shipyard. is known as the Celt. It was prim- primarily used as a private yacht. When World War I broke out, the U.S. Navy acquired the services ship for patrol duty, renaming the ship the, Sank- the Sankum. Sankum? Sankum? I would not want to be in a boat called Sankum. In There's 1917, no uh, and then at the end of the war, it was sold back and forth between different odor- owners, serving as private fishing vessel until 1942 when the World War II broke out, and the Navy once again sought out the ship for an arsenal uh, according to uh, Navy sources, the ship was renamed and commissioned the USS Pennekite, serving the war until 1945 when it was decommissioned returned back to its original owner, who continued the trend to rename the ship by once again calling it Sankum. Sankum. Huh. Uh, the vessel then was sold to Circle Line in New York, where it was circled Manhattan, providing sightseeing tours of the city skyline. During its decade-long tour guiding duties, it was known as a sightseer in the Circle Line 5. Then in 1984, after more than 80 years, when it was first assembled, the ship vanished. Everyone assumed it had been scrapped. Uh, but then a few years ago, members of a kayaking club pedaled around the area and stumbled upon it. Local maritime historian supposes that the ship was bought from the Circle Line tour group by a man in Cincinnati area who intended to refurbish and restore the ship. But that somehow never happened. So uh, it just sat there in the river as a ghost ship. Hmm. Interesting. Did, did you guys watch the video to see it? I sent, yeah, you I, took- better, I sent you a better one. Oh, is that a better one of it? Yes, sir. And you can turn the audio off and look at it. 
And it's like anything, count the number of beer cans and tell me how long that's been deserted. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you just don't have a boat that big that kids have not found and have used for other purposes. Okay. So, I yeah, I'm, oh, wow. I'm watching it now. That's a pretty good sized boat, isn't it? Yeah. Well, you know, a hundred and some feet. And now you could see why somebody would want to redo it. Now, does that look like maybe it got started or is that just normally how the paint would fall off? I would think that's deterioration. I got tree grown in it. So that's been sitting there a while. But that would look good in the bottom, wouldn't it? Oh, man. Mm-hmm. I just want the preservationist to get a hold of this one. I mean, here it is. It's on dry land. It's almost on dry oh, land. They, Come on, guys. Jump on the bandwagon. Got, they got to fix it. They'll be all up for that as long as somebody else pays for it. Yeah, that tank that, well, you got to go way up. You're going to see a big tank there inside of it. Uh, looks like they might have a little asbestos issue. Oh, I'm sure. Well, you know, with my dad working on some of these restoration projects that's one of the the things that usually gets them is that you have to have a group who really has experience in doing that yeah i'm kind of skipping through it now what state was that in again uh it's uh, indiana and kentucky border there i keep thinking of snakes uh it does look like that'd be a nice hidey hole for snakes wouldn't it oh yeah doesn't it moccasins and all sorts of other critters Still would have been cool to find it and play with oh, it. Oh, I, I see the tank you're talking about, the asbestos. Yeah, that's asbestos. Yeah. But it doesn't look like a lot of the pipes have asbestos on it. I didn't see the engines either. No. Well, there, there's parts that looks like they've been, uh, yeah, that's been, that's a lot of parts have been taken off. Yeah, it, it would be, that'd be a, a, quite a chore to restore it for anything. Oh, well. But that's, a, yeah, it's interesting. Wonder how I wonder how long ago it was that somebody noticed it. Mm. Then hear about this one in Ontario? discovery of a plane and as a pilot they say i always like this when they say fully intact yeah well you can have all the a lot of things can be fully in intact that i guess what they're saying is it didn't break up into a ton of parts uh this is out of oswego new york underwater explorers say they have found the wreck of the u.s air force twin engine plane that crashed into lake ontario more than 60 years ago it was a c-45 and it flew for miles on its own after the three-man crew and two civilian passengers bailed out. It was in a flight over central New York in 1952. The aircraft flew an autopilot for more than an hour before it crashed in a lake. It was on a routine flight, September 11th, from Belford, Massachusetts, to Griffiths Air Force Base in Rome, New York, when it crashed. Now, because an engine goes out, would you ditch a plane? Uh, depends, I suppose. But because if it's, it's flying that well... It makes you wonder. Well, and why then you think, contrib- you know, why they did that. Well, and then you think about what that plane could have done. Well, if it flew for an hour, it could have flown to a lot of airports in that hour. <laughs> you could have flown to a lot of airports. You could have flown into a lot of things, houses, people. You know, not that I necessarily believe the pilot should go down with the the plane, but at least you could kind of aim it in an area where you knew something wasn't going to happen. I don't know how you do that in with an hour out. Yeah. One of the articles I was looking various said they had some real good shots of the uh, in the sonar for it, and I'd like to see pictures of it. I'm surprised nobody's given you any pictures. You, so you I they have sonar back. of it? I have a picture. Oh, you do? Uh, let me send that to you. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I'd love to think of what they said. Fully intact. I'm going to send you the picture now. Okay. Uh, as soon as I figure out. Put the link on Skype. I'm going to send it to you guys, and however you do it. There you go. And stars and stripes. If you're in the military, you know what stars and stripes is. Used to be called stars and gripes too. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Fully intact. 
Looks like the skin behind the cockpit's missing. Nose is down. Yeah, yeah. But know. considering it, it, it either ran out of fuel or it did a good belly flop because it's basically the wings are still attached to tail. So yeah, I it, it. yeah. I, I think it just slowly drifted its way down until it kind of skimmed across the water. But, yeah. well, they, you can't see the blades. That's kind of what kind of tells you. Well, there's one shot it kind of shows a blade up, so it's almost like the engines were stopped when it went down. Yeah, the port the port side was stopped. You can see the prop. Yeah. Those are twin twin props, not not uh, tri-blades. Okay. Because the, the, the shot under it shows it with just yeah, the right. Shows- Looks like wooden, too, don't they? Yeah, that's, I like that. I like this article better than the one I had. Hey, I am pleased. I'd like to see the sonar shot, though. Well, what's that top one? Is that a photograph? With it's the really grainy. That, that top photo, it's kind of the one that Roger Palowski oh. took. That was a June 27th photo. Still be cool were, to find that sucker, wouldn't it? Yeah, they said that they were surprised and they found the wreck farther from shore than what witnesses had indicated. Could it just have been it floated? I don't know. Now, when you look at that front of that plane, it kind of had a nice, it was, they call that attack vein and nose boom on the, or is that a, just a different plane, not the same one? That it really doesn't tell me, does it? No, that's a NASA photo. Uh, you want to see what uh, that picture, uh, the actual plane looks like beforehand? All right, I'll send you that. Well, that would kind of explain why that nose is crumpled up like it is. Well, this is what the nose really looks like. You see that one? Coming to you. It almost looks like a beach. No. That's okay. the first one I got, Mac. Say what? That's the first one I got. You send the yeah. others on a different Skype page? Not oh, the same one I just used. Now they're both on mine. Well, I think you might. Maybe you're sending them directly to me. I'm special. Yeah, I'm going to go back to Skype here. I'll put put the other ones in. Oh, I'll put this one. one. Yeah, but uh, yeah, that's, a, that's a nice. All right, Toledo Blade. Is that Anybody got that now? Yeah. Jim, are you yeah. seeing it? Hang on. See, Mac, that'd be a good plane for you to have. No. Oh. Oh, ToledoBlade.com. Yeah, yeah, that one I got. That. Yeah, that one I got. That shows the aerial photo of the C-45. Yeah. That's the only one I got. Oh, you didn't get the... He didn't get the one with the underwater photos. No. Uh, but still, that's got to be embarrassing for that crew, I imagine. And yeah. You know, we had to oh, get it's going to go down. Yeah, yeah it's going to go down any minute. <laughs> and then it, it went an hour later. And then 11 years on the lake's bottom, a classic boat is salvaged by divers. That's a real interesting article. So the cl- uh, replica of a classic Garwood Speedster flipped during a race in a 2003 antique boat show in Lake Norman. It sank without a trace of lake's bottom at 81 feet below. It stayed there until Wednesday. So a little that over 10 like, years. That looks nice. Yeah. Well, it, I, the top. I, I'm, I'm wondering if it maybe it went down... And it flipped so that well, you had that buried in the mud? No, it actually it flipped on the surface and then started sinking, flipped back over, uh, but was on its way down as it was going down. But what's interesting about this is the driver is sitting behind the engine. Yeah, that is a, an unusual design. You know, you're sitting all the way in the stern of the boat. Uh, and all your engine is up in front of you when, you know, with the bow even further. That's really a, a unique configuration. So they said that they had a buoy on it. So he said, a, I swam underwater to attach a buoy to it before it sank. And as I attached the buoy, I could feel the fo- boat flip back upright as the last of the air escaped and it started sinking. And then in 2008, a retired Air Force Colonel Buckley, a Marine mechanic and master scuba diver who lives in St. Croix, Virgin Islands, began researching the wreck 
for parts for the repair business out of discovery, discovering sunken artifacts. Yeah, he found the location of the boat on a sonar scan of the lake, and then in mid-June they descended to the lake bottom to search out the exact location. Said he, be, uh, oh, they got to a bad start, became tangled in a submerged tree, and it took 10 minutes to escape. And then while he was escaping, he mucked up the bottom so bad he couldn't see anything. And then he, uh, on a hunch, turned to the left and bumped into it. They didn't say anything about the buoy. The one that was tied when it originally went down? No. I wonder if the line rotted off and it was gone. Yeah. I don't know. They're trying to make this a little bit more dramatic than it, than it is. I know, but that, that's still a good-looking boat for being down there that long. Yeah. Yeah. Nice find. 56 degrees at 81 feet. That doesn't sound bad at all. No, it's like, that's kind of tropical. Wish we could get that. Yeah. We had about 42 degrees at 42 feet last week. And then yeah, our 80 la- degrees the other day. <laughs> and then we've got our last article here. We have a dive group is aiming to sink a wreck. An old destroyer is uh, slated to be added to the house sound. But the fate of the ship is still up in the air. The HMCS Annapolis didn't see action during our three, three decades patrolling the seas as part of the Royal Canadian Navy. The 110-meter warship may soon find a different location in the house sound. They said since Vancouver doesn't offer much in the way of World War I memorabilia, uh, they took a tour of the Cold War-era battleship. It was launched in 1963 and decommissioned in 1996. Uh, sat rusting in the Vancouver Island before being purchased by the Artificial Reef Society of British Columbia in 2009 for an undisclosed sum. The nonprofit group has sunk eight military vessels under its belt, not to mention a B-737. They said it would be the first ship scuttled a short distance from a major tourist destination. Uh, Jacques Cousteau once described British Columbia as offering the best temperature water diving in the world, temperate, second only to the Red Sea. They said the maximum depth will be 105 feet at high tide, and most of the diving will be between 50 and 90 feet. You'll be able at least to see 85 to 90 percent of the ship. I think that's that's a that's a nice depth, wouldn't you say? I think that'd be optimum. Yeah. They said the nice thing about the size of wreck is you keep going back and never see the same thing twice. That's a great. They said the ship is still a subject of a lawsuit from the owner of WR Marine Services, who claims he is still owed a hundred thousand for stripping and mooring the vessel. Whoa. They said they're hoping to send Annapolis to a watery grave by the end of the summer. The date is yet to be finalized. His organization is still waiting for final approval from Environment Canada. Yeah, it asbestos sounds like they got to have a, asbestos has to have something to do with that. A hundred thousand. Well, you consider the how many they'd done before. They should have had this all ironed out. Shouldn't have been any surprises here. Okay, well that does it for scuba in the news. So. Has anybody been getting any diving in the last few weeks? Oh, I got the last couple of weeks, got a couple dives in. Where'd you go? Jim? I'm sorry. Um, <laughs> two two weeks ago, we did the Ironsides. Okay. Up outside of Grand Haven. That's at 120 feet. Um, had a couple novice divers. That now, now when, why don't you describe what you consider to be a novice diver? I mean, just novice for that wreck? or Well, these were guys with between 50 and 100 dives uh, under their belt, but hadn't been... One diver had been down that deep. Uh, previously, another one had not, and he really wanted to go. Uh, the 
one diver had had 100 to 120 feet of dives and was closer to 100 dives total, Uh, but it had been a while since he'd been that deep. And the second diver was a newer diver who's been doing a lot of diving, uh, diving with us, but his max had been in the 70 to 80 foot range. Now, they'd done any chamber dives before or was this? No. So they we, no. they didn't know at what depth they would start to narc or right. how they would work in narced conditions. Right. And the Ironsides is at 120. Um, beautiful, beautiful wreck, uh, but you've got very limited bottom time. So we, we told both of these guys that, you know, the first plan, first dive, uh, the plan was just to hit the bottom. You know, experience the 120 feet, go down, uh, set your buoyancy. Get on the bottom, uh, make sure your buoyancy is set. You know, if you're comfortable, you can get off the anchor line a little bit. You know, if we get to see the wreck, that's a plus. But our goal for the first dive was just go down and spend five to 10 minutes at 120 feet on the bottom, um, making sure you're comfortable. See what the temperature is, see what the visibility is, see what the ambient light is. Uh, make sure your gear is all functioning properly. Make sure your buoyancy is set. You know, we want you to experience this depth before you get away from the anchor line. So uh, I took the least experienced and another uh, rescue diver or fire department diver took the other, the more experienced of the, the two novices, I would say. And they did their dive first. Uh, I hit the bottom. Everything was good. We ended up being about 100 feet off the wreck uh, because the anchor line had drifted. We didn't actually snag it. We we drifted a little bit. So there was so no st- buoy on the wreck? No buoy on the wreck, no. Okay, so it, for for people, you know, at 120 feet, when you have a line properly scoped, even if you drop the anchor on the wreck, when you tend to go down the line, you seems like you pull the boat with you a little bit. Well, so you, you can have quite a swim. Yeah, we had... Uh, I think close to 300 feet of line out on the anchor line for 120 foot depth. And there was a a pretty good current, I'd say a two knot or so current on the surface. So, you know, we were, there was a good scope on the anchor line. It wasn't a straight up and down shot. You know, you were traveling 300 feet forward to get 100 feet down roughly. So they hit the bottom, um, great visibility, temperatures in the low to mid 40s, I'd say 42 to 45, somewhere in that range. Um, first two guys stretched their tagline out uh, straight to the wreck, and it was 100 feet to the wreck. They could see it at about 70 feet away, you know, great visibility. Uh, they could really make it out within 30 feet. Um, got the tagline there, tied it off to the wreck, um, turned around and came back. So my buddy and I went down and we hit the bottom and he was ready to follow the tag line. And I stopped him and we, you know, went through a couple of, uh, made sure buoyancy was set, uh, just stopped and took 30 seconds worth of breathing just to, you know, settle down, make sure things were good, check the anchor that it was dug in well, check the tag line. Um, and then he and I took a couple minutes, basically swam up to the wreck so he could see it, turned around and came back. And then back up to the surface, uh, did a safety hang, and got back on the boat. So that was our first dive. Uh, And then the second dive, uh, my buddy and the experienced diver from the first dive teamed up. Because I didn't do a second, and the other novice diver didn't want to do a second. So they went down the second time, 
and uh, were able to get over to the wreck, uh, get a little more visibility on it, got some photos, and and shot back to back to the boat. So um, did have an incident on the second dive. Uh, the inexperienced diver had some sort of air leak on the on his on his first stage. We're not quite sure exactly what it was, but he was blowing high pressure air out of his first stage somewhere. He no. heard it. Uh, checked his gauges, recognized that he was, you know, heard it hissing, knew he had a leak of some sort. So he tugged on the his buddy's line, uh, the tag line, got his buddy's attention. Uh, he pulled the pony bottle regulator uh, out of his pocket, turned it on, had it charged, ready to go, and just continued breathing off his primary regulator until he said it got hard to breathe. Uh, and then he switched over to the pony and did his full ascent on the pony. Probably came up a little faster than he should have, but he said he stayed below his bubbles. You know, so he was under 60 feet a minute ascent, even though 30 feet a minute's recommended. Uh-huh. Uh, it hit 15 feet, and by the time he hit the anchor line and started back up, he had switched to his pony. Uh, his buddy was right behind him. They just dropped the reels they were using, left everything on the bottom, headed on, um, came back to, you know, came up to 30 feet, did a safety hang there, and then got back on the boat. And we stripped him down and kept an eye on him to see if he got any skin bends or had any bends problems at all. Uh, he did his safety hang. He never got into deco, so we weren't overly concerned about it. We were just a bit concerned about coming up a little too quickly. Mm-hmm. So we had the oxygen standing by. Actually, we had the oxygen bottle hanging at 20 feet. Uh, right off the anchor line uh, before when the first crew went in the water, we staged that oxygen bottle for them there. And they didn't need it, but we pulled it up onto the boat, had it available for surface oxygen if needed. And, uh, you know, we, we sat there and pulled anchor, untangled the lines that came up with the anchor, uh, beat feet back towards the beach, and everything turned out fine. But we talked about the incident on the way back to the, the dock, um, you know, and it, it was one of those where the planning paid off. Um, he planned to take a pony bottle. We took the pony bottle, made sure it was hung, made sure he had good access to his regulator, charged the pony bottle before he went down. Um, you know, on the first dive, he and I actually stopped and did some regulator checks, you know, switched from the primary regulator to the octopus regulator, um, pulled the pony regulator out, didn't actually breathe off of it. I did mine. He did not his. On the first dive, I actually did. He didn't. Um, and then switched back to the primary regulators just to kind of test them at depth, make sure we weren't going to have any free flows or that they were all operating properly at depth before we ever left the anchor line. Uh, you know, just since, since he hadn't been that deep, just doing an equipment check at depth before we got away from the anchor. Uh, and actually, that worked out well because, you know, when he had the problem on the second dive, he didn't panic. He breathed the air source that he had, used all the air up that he had in that primary air source, then switched to his secondary air source, made sure his buddy knew what was going on and was headed to the surface with him. Uh, the buddy pulled out the octopus and had it in his hand, ready to hand off anytime necessary. But the primary diver was able to stick with the pony. And, uh, you know, all in all, it was one of those where when we sat down and said, what would you do different if you were to go through this whole situation again? Uh, the only thing was would have been to come up a little bit slower, you know, watch your depth gauge as you're surfacing to make sure you don't come up too fast. 
But even at that, you know, they never really, uh, they, they did not change the scope on the anchor line. So they weren't pulling the anchor line, you know, up halfway right. up, which is a good indication they came up at a relatively safe safe level just because of the anchor line, you know, the yeah. angle it was at. So that was our excitement on the iron sides. Now, what was the, uh, what size pony did he have? He had a 30 cubic foot pony. And how much air did he have in it when he was done? Uh, 1,500 pounds when he hit the boot. Oh, wow. Yeah, so he still had plenty of cushion. Yeah, he had plenty of cushion with the pony. That's what he said. He, you know, he, he slowed down his breathing. He realized what was going on. You know, at first it, it kind of surprised him. and It was like, beat feet, get to the surface, which, yeah, good move. You know, his buddy's right there, so there's a secondary air source. His buddy had a pony, so there's, you know, uh, you had one tank go bad, and there were three other tanks that he could have gotten air from. He was self-sufficient in that he had his own pony. He switched to it, did not need any of his buddy's air but the buddy was there with plenty of air to supply plus there was a a safety bottle hanging at 20 feet of pure o2 that they could have gone to at any time they needed it and that was 30 feet of of o2 at 20 feet yeah so you know it was a a a lesson learned Mm -hmm. um it was uh you know his comment was i'm not going to get a shower without a pony bottle i will never dive without a pony bottle again i won't even get in the shower without a pony bottle (laughs) So, you know, it it's yeah. it, it worked out well. It, it for, for a bad situation, it all turned out well and it just, you know, training, training, training. Uh, yeah, this diver, he his trainer and my trainer must have been trained at the same place because, you know, one of the first things that was beat into my head was as long as you have air, you have time. And what you need to think about is how do you extend the air that you have? You breathe slower, you go shallower, you use every bit of air you can get out of the tank before you give it up and go to a different tank. And that's exactly what he did. He slowed down his breathing as much as he could. He, you know, thought about it, controlled it. Uh, he went as shallow as he could, as quickly as he could, but he stopped and did his safety hangs at 30 feet. Even though we weren't in deco, he still maintained that, you know, awareness of the depth and the need to control his ascent and do a safety hang. So, you know, hats off to a, a novice diver. Again, a guy with, you know, between 50 and 75 dives under his belt. Um, but he's been diving with us for about a year, and, you know, we, we've tried to beat it into his head. Um, some of the, the safety that we make, we try to make second nature when we're, when we're diving all the time. Because you you know you 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 play the way you train uh, you when when you're using muscle memory you know and you're just reacting um, doing things the way you train to do them you know proper training saves lives and we're not instructors but we sure try to teach the best techniques that we know or see and things that we know work well for us and this this is one where we we went through this thing uh, and there was really nothing that we would have done differently given the situation. You know, we had great visibility, great temps on the wreck. The divers were together. They weren't side by side, but, you know, they were within 10 to 15 feet of each other in 30 plus feet of visibility, you know, and you could make out shapes at about 70 feet. Um, so it was a good outcome. Yeah. Everybody now, went home. Every, nobody got hurt. Now on the wreck, was there a lot of uh, fishing line on the wreck this time? 
not that we noticed. Uh, we didn't get. I didn't do a second dive. I just got up to the wreck and got some quick, okay. you know, a view of it. Um, we didn't spend a lot of time exploring the wreck. Uh, they were trying to get some photo opportunities. You know, it was really neat the way we came into it. Uh, we hit it just about midship, and there was a uh, the remains of a wagon wheel lying up against the hull. And it's a wooden wagon wheel with a metal rim around the outside of it. And it almost looks like a ship's wheel. But you've got this wheel lying against the hull. And in the background behind it is the engine rising up about 20 feet above the hull. So it really was a great shot, great view as we were coming into the wreck. Nice. Yeah, that's a, that was one of the more dramatic wrecks I can remember doing a deep dive on. Where, you know, the, I think the first time I dove on it, we came down from above. There was a buoy on it. And you go from not being able to see the bottom to where you can see the top of the two boilers. And that's just an amazing sensation as that wreck opens up behind underneath you. Okay, I think we're back. Okay. So that, that really is a picturesque wreck. I would like to get back and spend more time on it, but it's one where, you know, mm -hmm. at 120 feet, you don't get a whole lot of bottom time unless you're going to get into deco or go at it with uh, a mixed gas. Well, and that's a good one maybe to, uh, for practice because you've got your, your tech rating. So that'd be a good one to, you know, it's still recreational depths, but you can easily get in a deco obligation. If anybody goes oh, yeah. to the club site, there's a good picture of it on the club site already. You can see the visibility and that wheel you're talking about. Yeah, that's at uh, mudclub.scubaobsessed.com. Yeah, that was a nice picture. What was that taken on? That's the... I think that's the one from this week, from this past weekend. Yes, it is. I do believe Kevin took that. Was the camera? Um, GoPro. Yeah, it GoPro? Was a GoPro shot. Considering okay. ambient light, that's a good shot. Yeah, yeah. Every time I see, you know, because that that wreck, that that's the thing with underwater photos. Sometimes is they don't really do the wreck justice because it always seems darker than it really is. Because you have some people who say that they're a little. They feel claustrophobic and they're concerned. I'm not, I'm not going to say that we always dive with great visibility, but whatever you see in the pictures, it's usually much nicer. And then did you have another dive in that you were talking about? Yeah, this past Saturday, we got out to, after, after going deep, I wanted to get some nice shallow bottom time. So we went ran out to the Havana which is listed at about 42 feet, but we found a couple holes that got us down to 50 feet. And if you've ever dove the Havana, this is the year to dive it. There is more of that wreck exposed than I have ever seen in 25 years of diving this area. Uh, you can go down the centerboard. I mean, the centerboard's always been there. And then the last few years, there's been some pieces off to the left and off to the right of the centerboard, which was, you know, where the hull would start to curve up. Well, you can actually see deck boards or floorboards uh, right next to the centerboard and actually see the whole hull laid out in front of you. Not quite flat, but almost flat. The sand is off of it. Wow. We spotted three separate dead eyes nice. on that wreck uh, this past weekend. And this is a wreck that, was discovered when people were still able to legally take dead eyes off it. Yeah. So that shows you that at that point in time when it was discovered, those were buried. Actually yeah. not. People were just nice? Yeah, that was found by uh, Bill Byers and uh, 
the other name escapes me at this moment, but they were members of the dive club or did some of the first uh, aquathons with us in days gone by. Uh, but you figure the anchor chain is still there. The anchor is still there, though that's still covered up. So did anybody do a search if the anchor chain? Was- no, we, we came down. Actually, uh, the buoy that had been on it wasn't at the surface. So we ended up hooking into it with the, the anchor at the very east west end of it west end of it and uh we didn't go off into the sand looking for the anchor chain but we went up the keel and then off to the side where the 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 one dead eye we knew was where the the ribs and railing are and there's one in the sand there's one on the rail and there's one in the wire the rigging is that is that wire rigging pile much larger should be yes yes and that dead eye is about a foot and a half, maybe two feet above the sand in that wire rigging, the one that's attached part of the rigging. That's where we hit that 60-foot hole or 50-foot hole, and we found that it's it's not going to settle any more than that because it's sitting on a clay bank. All the sand has washed away, and you can see the clay bank that it's settled oh. on top of. Could that be why we're seeing clay banks in other parts, is that maybe they were covered with sand and now they're not? I think that's a big piece of it. You know, the sand is shifting around uh, and the clay doesn't move. The clay, you know, the clay stays solid, not as solid as a rock, but it just, it doesn't move as like the sand does. Yeah, and water levels seem to be up, aren't they? Yeah, that could account too for why it seemed a little deeper. But we hit 50 feet uh, right there by the railing and the rail was out of the, out of the sand a good, the whole rail was at least a foot out of the sand. Yeah, I, I've got to get on that wreck. It's been a couple of years since I've been on the Havana. So that's going to be a completely different experience. Or not yeah, completely is. different, but substantially different than what I've seen before. Like that, so much that. to see. Now, uh, for people who don't know, what is that, when you say that cable on a wreck that old, what is that from? The, the rigging. Uh, you would have, and when we talk about dead eyes, for people who don't know what a dead eye is, uh, if you picture the old pirate ships or the sailing ships, um, you've got rigging that comes from the top of the mast down to the outside of the hull on the side of the ships. Um, and that's what holds your mast straight. And they would use, you know, early, early ships before 1850, 1860, all that rigging was in rope. And after about the 1860s, they started converting it over to, you know, um, wire or steel cable. And that's what this one is. It's cable that comes down. And the the wire comes down from the top of the mast and then goes into a dead eye. And a dead eye basically has, it's a block. These are about eight inches around, uh, circles, um, flat on the front and the back. And then the cable would come down and go around the outside circumference of the circle, like a tire on a rim, and be clamped tight. And then the three holes in the dead eye, you would run rope from there to a matching dead eye that comes up from the deck. So you've got one on the rail that comes up from the side of the ship, and then you've got one coming down from the mast on a wire. And they would use it like a block and pulley, uh, run the rope between it, and that's how they would tension the mast to keep the mast straight. You know, so they would balance these off to put the right tension on both sides of them, and that would hold the mast centered at the top of, of the mast in the ship. 
Now, the rope would rot away, but the dead eyes, because they're attached with steel or cable or whatever to the ships, remained. And the dead eye wood that they're made of uh, normally was the hardest wood they could find. Um, boats built in North America quite often used white oak because white oak will not rot like a red oak would. Uh, or the more expensive ships would use a, an iron wood or a maligna verte, which was a Brazilian hardwood. But they're very hard, very um, – they, they last forever when properly cared for or maintained. And so that's why they're one of the treasures of, you know, sailing ships. Fortunately, Great Lakes now, they're all preserved, and you won't find people taking them uh, and putting them on their mantles. But they're, uh, they're kind of the tra- – it's like finding a porthole. You know, there's certain things that you just always look for on a ship. Max well, always just, looking for the treasure chest, but – Yeah, the, the gold. But the, the, the dead eye is pretty distinctive looking too. Yeah, yeah. And you'll find them on the rail and you'll find them on the, the rigging. Finding the pieces on the rigging are much harder to find than the rail because the rigging would break away, get pulled off the, the ship itself, and who knows where that was. If you can find a mast and you trace it around, you know, you may find a dead eye from the, the standing rigging on the mast. And then the other piece that it matches up to is always attached to the hull of the ship. And usually it's right at or just above the level of the rail on the deck of the ship. Sent you a so, link for a good picture of a dead eye, by the way. Didn't come across Skype, but... Darren, did you see it? Uh, yeah, yeah. Let me see. Maybe I'm I like, You guys must it. be in a different Skype session than I am. Yeah, here. Let me paste it to you, Jim. I see oh, it. No, that's Got not it. it. That's a... Vancouver Courier? No, that's the wrong one. No, that's the wrong link. Well, I'm, I'm still not, even though I've had this Mac for a while, I'm not. I'm a PC person. And I, my shortcuts are not quite the same. So Wikipedia.org, dead eye, yep. Yeah, yeah the, take a look the, at the, that. The great book of knowledge on the internet. Yep, there it is. And that's a dead eye right there. And that would be the lower piece from the rail. Mm-hmm. That's the rail piece. The upper piece would be, if you go to Wikipedia and look up dead eye. Um, yeah, that, that second one, the one that they say is from the Excelsior, that yeah, shows one yeah. rigged up. Uh, triple dead eyes and lanyards used to tension shrouds. Yeah, so you can see how the upper dead eye, you know, has the wire from the mast coming down and going around it, and the lower dead eye is attached to the hull, and then the rope between is what they would use to tension. Now, how often would you have? To, would you ever have to loosen that up? Um, only if you've been through a major storm or had a knockdown or you changed your rig. You know, then you might have to tension the rig as things settled and stretched. Yeah. Of course, so on, just, on rope rigging, you would have to tension it much more than on wire rigging. Yeah. I was just wondering if... Wire doesn't the, stretch like rope does. If, if temperature, if you had, like, you know, cold weather to warm weather, if that changed that much. Not that much, no. Yeah. No, that, that's a good one, Mac. Yep. Very uh, good one. Now, now, Mac, what, you've, you've had to have gotten some dives in the last few weeks. Uh, I've got in a couple times. <laughs> Is that per day? We're or? not talking about just yesterday, Mac. We're talking about a couple of weeks. <laughs> oh, if you count a couple of weeks, there's quite a few dives, I reckon. Most of the time, it, it's Pawpaw Lake, of course. And now, how's the visibility in Pawpaw this year? Say again? How's the visibility in Pawpaw this year? Actually, sucks. 
just like last year. Part of it must be the decay in vegetation from the sonar treatments. Uh, the milfoil is pretty much gone. You will still run into patches, but you've got three more invasive species out there, which are kicking butt, uh, and they've really blossomed in the last two or three weeks. Now, have you been able to try any of the new spots that uh, you had leads on? Uh, I really not. Well, I went out looking for the gypsy to see if she really was in uh, Sherwood Bay. I think the old wreckage that is in Outlet Bay is the gypsy. I can't prove that yet, but that's one item. I did find the bones of a second wreck uh, on the left side of Outlet Bay that is sub-bottom, meaning if you don't put a three-foot probe down, you, you don't find it. And then when you did, it's like, that's some big ten, you know, some big timbers. So it's possible you got another one sitting there, and that's maybe 25 feet offshore, but it gets down to 28, 22 feet there. So it's really covered in muck, but there's the bones of a wreck there. And then um, a big twin uh, bilge pump I've relocated that uh, several, couple of feet, just a large one. It was not on a small boat. So that obviously came off of something like the Margaret or the Gypsy or the City of Pawpaw. Uh, but there's nothing on it, and I'm not going to bring it up unless the uh, museum wants it. Because you'd have to clean it to see if there's a label on it to identify which boat it came off of. Yeah, you, you need to conserve it if you're going to bring it up. Right. And I, I, they're, they're not inclined to do so at this moment, so I left it alone. And I, I do have pictures of it. And probably the, the neatest item I did get is it got me a nice hutchie, but it was from Texas. So the history oh, of that geez. bottle has got to be outstanding. Hmm. Yeah. So, so let's see. I, I have yet to find a hutchie. I have yet to find a hutchie. And then Mac finds them when he just goes in the water like every time. I get lucky occasionally. <laughs> occasionally. <laughs> but, you know, one thing is if, if you're not looking, you can't find it. Yeah. So that's a, that's a reason to get out there and dive. If you're in the grubbing, it's uh, it's all about bottom time. So I I I'm trying to figure out when I'm going to be able to get back in the water again. I've I, next next week we won't have a show. A few of us are going to be on vacation. I'm going to be feeding mosquitoes at the scout camp at Wolf Lake. I'm not going to even pretend to bring my scuba gear this time. Every time I've brought it before, I haven't been able to use it. Uh, this time you will wish you had it because there'll be an opportunity. Yeah, I mean, there's been opportunities before, but it just there's. I mean, it's really about the scouts, and it takes a lot of effort. And uh, I've been having fun with uh, having, you know. Luckily now I got the dry suit, so it's not slowing me up. But I've put, I had my transmission rebuilt in the scuba dive vehicle, and I had bearings and ball joints put all the way around. So I've almost got as much into it as what I paid for it originally. <laughs> Just in the last three weeks of repairs. But yeah, I'm not going to, I won't be able to dive this weekend and I won't be able to dive next weekend. So I am, my gear, I'm, I, I'm like spritzing it with water to keep it hydrated. <laughs> so what's the plan for this weekend? Do you guys got anything on the agenda? Well, I've been doing a little research on a wreck uh, oh. in the river. Ooh. You know, I've been looking for the Davy Crockett. No, is that the one uh, above the dam? Yeah, it depends on, I finally found some reports on it, and uh, I'll know better next week. I got a little more research to do, and then uh, Ken is off next week, and we had planned on doing some scanning in where the area might be, and now I have a much, much, much better lead to exactly where it is that I need to confirm at the library and do some research this week that's coming up. So maybe next time we have a get-together, we can say if we found a very old wreck, uh, I think it's 1836, Oh, wow. Yeah, yeah. 
And it's and a it's steamer. Named the, that's named the Davy Crockett? Yes, it's named the Davy Crockett. It used to run from uh, Niles to St. Joe's. God, and, that, and that is a big deal for people who don't, you know, who are not familiar with the area. Because we have a dam, which is over 100 years old, on that river. They, there's photos of the, of the, they had an interurban train that went across the river. And there's abutments. And there's photos of the abutments being there before the dam was completed but was under construction. So for to be able to go from Niles to St. Joe is definitely pre-dam. And there's spots now where I can't believe that you ever had enough water to have a boat. So that had well, been a shallow draft? It, it's interesting how they did that. If you go back and read how they did their daily chores, and in many instances, they had certain trees on shore that had tackle. And it would be shallow enough that they would rig the tackle to the boat to get it to those shallow parts. Okay, so they would, the boat would, they essentially, like, use the, the rocks in the bottom of the river, like ball bearings. They would just drag it over it. Yes, in certain parts of the river, they had to do that, depending on the time of year. Yeah. And the lake levels. Yeah, because we was, didn't, you, really you didn't have dams to open up to raise the river level if you needed to. It was. Right. But it would really be really interesting to find this one. Yeah, it would. That's uh, That would really be something from a historic standpoint. Yeah, now, how, be the, very now how is the river doing as far as uh, current? Last few times I've looked, it's been pretty swift moving. And black. And I was black. there last week, and you've got, if I said a foot, I'd probably be lying. That's probably uh, too much. <laughs> yeah, that, and, that same storm that knocked out the internet <clears throat> also uh, flooded all the little creeks around it. I mean, we've had flood watches on some of these. Right. You do not want to be back out there again until we've got them viz, because I can tell you now you're going to find trees where we didn't have them last time. And we're, we're not talking like a Christmas tree size. We're talking oh, tree. You know, eight. 80 to 100 foot trees with all the limbs then you're gonna we're gonna say uh, that wasn't there before yeah talk about know. snag hazard that's not what you oh. want to back into at zero viz no no not at all okay well uh let's see do we got anything else we want to plug how's the preserve doing jim oh we've always got memberships available dive swmup.com we've updated with a few uh GPS locations as we've gotten reports that buoys are up and so we're getting those out there and uh, we're up to 28 air fills for your $25 membership so see, which check is out a... divesswmup.com so let's see which was the last shop that we talked about let's see I'm, gonna, I'm on the site now and we've got the list of shops I think we did Wolf's last time so now yep. we're to are we to Aquatic Adventures of Michigan already? Are we? Yeah, because we did, uh, yeah, we did Dive and Glive Subaquatic Divers Incorporated Wolf Supply, and now we're to Aquatic Adventures of Michigan. That one's in Brighton. Uh, let's see, one zero zero four nine East Grand River Suite two hundred, Brighton, Michigan. Four eight one one six. Is that the new address? I'm on their website, so okay. So you must have—they must have changed it then. Great. I know so they moved if, into a new location, larger location in Brighton. Then they had a pretty big location before. Yeah. So this must be a monster. Uh, area code eight one zero two two five nine eight six eight. 
and they are open uh looks like every day of the week except for sunday if you get in there tell them uh we sent you over say hi to steve yeah they steve, are uh, a uh, a a poseidon yeah. poseidon uh, and then uh i think they're talking about uh what was that the other one ap ambient pressure yeah uh for rebreathers yeah they've got a couple different rebreathers over there um so our patty five-star center so I know they're diving in uh, the Brighton area quite a bit. And if you're not familiar with where that is, that's about uh, 10 minutes north of Ann Arbor, Michigan. Yeah, now isn't that your old stomping ground where you used to be? Yeah, I spent some time over there, a couple of years, uh, lived in that area. Yeah, and if you remember the episode, I can't remember which episode it was, but that's where we did the rebreathers with uh, Steve Lewis and uh, what's uh, what's his, Steve's other last name, the other Steve? Steve Lewis, yeah. you got to help. Well, we had Steve Lewis, but who's my memory's so bad? He's gonna, he's gonna shoot me. Yeah, Phillips. Steve Phillips, yeah. So, uh, yeah, the yeah Steves. great. The Steves. This calling the Steves is plural, but yeah, they're they've graciously donated some uh, two air fills for members of the underwater preserve. So if you're in that area. You, know, you you definitely need to be buying a and you might not necessarily think of the Southwest Michigan underwater preserve, but you're helping the preserve out, and then you're also helping yourself out because you get some free air out of it. Their website is www.aquaticadventuresofmi.com, and you get to that link at the www.diveswmup.com website. Click on membership, and you'll see a list of all the dive shops that are graciously donated to the preserve basic membership is how much 25 25 and we greatly appreciate uh, all the clubs um and shops that are supporting us yeah so that's less than a dollar a fill if you were to go to every shop and get all the fills you're entitled to that's a buck a piece now you said you got some on the the preserve website we have some new data you just you've updated some of the the shipwrecks we've updated some gps positions and you know marked a few that we've heard have uh, buoys on them so as people report getting buoys set or seeing a buoy on the wrecks they're passing that along so we try to update the website with that yep and you can go and click we got uh, google maps on the site so you get relative positions so whether you're going out of st joe benton harbor new buffalo Holland, we've got the shipwrecks marked, and you can dive them. Yeah. Mac, you got anything to plug? No, not this week. I'm pretty much sitting back, cooling my heels, and diving. Yep. So you can also visit our website, www.scubaobsessed.com. We're on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash scubaobsessed. And you can follow us on the Twitter, at scubaobsessed. And we do have news not every day, but usually a few times a week we'll update the articles. So if you'd like to keep up on, on even more articles than we talk about in the show, we've got them there for you. I, and I filter them. You know, you don't have to go through the hassle of getting the websites. You know, if the website annoys me, it doesn't make it. So I cut it off. Okay, so let's see. Is it, is it that's, takes it to that time of the show. <laughs> standing by the groan button on the yeah let me see i don't know if i've if i put the did i put the groan in here i've clipped the groan i didn't put it in so everybody's going to 
miss out in the groan, huh? I need to get that done. Okay. Well, just get oh. the crickets ready then. The crickets. Okay, let me see. Where's the crickets? Yeah, I, I can see the crickets from here. Okay. Well, now i got to pull up the, the show notes. Where, where'd they go? They're hiding from me. Okay, and this one we got to thank. And we've had, uh, this has come in through our Facebook. People have messaged us. And I have to thank Rob, Rob, I said Rob, Rod, R-O-D-M, out of California. He's He sent a few notes and gave us some five-star reviews, which we certainly appreciate. And he's been sending us some bad scuba jokes. Are you saying he's to blame? Yeah, yeah, I would say he's to blame. <laughs> yeah, he's, he, he, he's to give a little bit about him. And I think we can tell him we've obscured his name enough so people can't hunt him down. He says if you're wondering who's supplying these awful jokes, he says he's an Irishman living in New Zealand working as an SSI instructor. And I said he was from California, but he's not. As you know, spending a lot of time underwater addles the brain a while and your sense of per- humor gets permanently twisted. We are currently in winter mode in New Zealand, which means 60 degree Fahrenheit water temperature here in the North Island. The far end of the South Island is having some snow presently, and I can have an ice dive at altitude. Even though we are having the mildest winter in a long time, I'm off to Tonga shortly to resort I've made connections with. Uh, there we have humpback whales congregating for the next four months, and we are allowed to swim with them. We are recently found a wreck of the 18th century pirate ship, uh, the Port-au-Prince, believed to hold a large quantity of Spanish treasure. Of course, we know that all shipwrecks hold no treasure because if you find them, nobody should ever know about it. So hoping that you have some awesome dives and some great treasure finds. And thank you for the bad scuba jokes. So here we go. Far away from the tropical waters of the Caribbean, two prawns were swimming around in the sea. One called Justin, the other called Christian. The prawns were constantly being harassed and threatened by sharks that inhabited the area. Finally, one day, Justin said to Christian, I'm fed up with being a prawn. I wish I was a shark, and then I wouldn't have any worries about being eaten. A large, mysterious cod appeared and said, Your wish is granted. Lo and behold, Justin turned into a shark. Horrified, Christian immediately swam away, afraid of being eaten by his old mate. Time passed, and Justin found life as a shark boring and lonely. All his old mates simply swam away when he came close to them. Justin didn't realize his new menacing appearance was the cause of his sad plight. While swimming one day, he saw a mysterious cod again and thought perhaps the mysterious fish could change him back into a prawn. He approached the cod and begged to be changed back, and lo and behold, he found himself turned back into a prawn. With tears of joy, his tiny little eyes, Justin swam back to his friends and brought them all a cocktail. Looking around the gathering at Reese, he realized he couldn't see his old pal. Where's Christian, he asked. He's at home, still distraught. His best friend changed sides with the enemy and became a shark, came a reply. Eager to put his things right again and end his mutual pain and torture, he set off for Christian's abode. He opened the coral gate and memories came flooding back. He banged the door and shouted, It's me, Justin, your old friend. Come out and see me again. Christian replied, No way, you'll eat me. You're now a shark, the enemy, and I will not be tricked into being your dinner. Justin cried back, No, I'm not. That was the old me. I've changed. I found Cod. I'm a prawnigan Christian. Hit the groan button a lot. <laughs> we need. I need... found Cod. I'm a prawn again, Christian. Oh. oh it's 
It's like you have to say it again. Just just to sink in. <laughs> yep. Oh, that that's a that's a crickets joke. <laughs> well, until next time, go out there and get wet. And stay safe. And let's hope that no prawns were harmed in the making of tonight's show.